Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. Caring for the wildlife in Wyndham County. We talked to Sherry Harmon, a state-appointed animal rehabilitator, about her 20 years of treating and caring for sick and injured animals and returning them to the wild. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. We see it all the time, a bird injured on the roadside, struck by a passing vehicle, or baby birds that fall out of nests to larger animals with injuries or sickness. Here in Connecticut, we share our lives and backyards with many different types of wildlife, and sometimes they need some TLC like the rest of us. Across the state, there are many organisations and people doing just that. And I caught up recently with Sherry Harmon, a state-appointed animal rehabilitator, to talk about her continuing work and the 20th anniversary of her organisation, Nutmeg Acres Wildlife Rehabilitation. So, Sherry, you've just got off yet another telephone call. You were saying that you get, what was it, yesterday you had about 32 telephone calls from people with inquiries? About 32 yesterday. I mean, we get anywhere from, I would say, minimally 10 to 30-plus calls a day about wildlife in distress or, you know, just general wildlife questions. So, yeah, my phone is, is ringing constantly. How did you get into this? Because this is it's a big deal. And, and what got you like started on this road of wanting to look after, obviously, Connecticut's wildlife? Yeah, so I grew up on a farm and I was always finding stuff. And looking back on that, hindsight 2020, most of the animals I was finding on the farm did not need any sort of assistance from a teenager. A couple of them did, but, you know, we would hay the fields and we would, you know, disturb the rabbit's nest, thinking mom wouldn't come back. So I would take baby rabbits home and I would raise them and I would take care of them and nurture them and release them back into the wilds. And then I went to college in Maine. I went to Unity College and I was doing environmental education. And I did my internship down at the Wildlife Center in Virginia. And there I was very hands-on in wildlife rehab. And I absolutely fell in love with it. And when I came back home from Maine to Connecticut, I decided to pursue getting my Connecticut permit to become a wildlife rehabilitator. And we just celebrated 20 years last week. Well, congratulations, of course, with 20 years of, of looking after, you know, these amazing animals. We're in your little shed here at your property in the village of Moosa. You're doing some feeding. We've got a couple that looks like, what is it, two or three little birds. Just explain what we've got here. Yeah, so these guys came in yesterday. So there's a single robin nestling that um, the nest was knocked down, likely by a predator, and other chicks did not survive. There were three dead chicks and this single, and we can't 
put a single back into the nest because it doesn't have the ability to self-regulate its body temperature when mom is away foraging for food. So we brought them in so that we can stabilize and then these birds will be transferred to another rehabilitator who focuses on songbirds. And then these two little uh, house finches, a similar sort of situation, their nest came down, there were a couple dead babies. There's a, a considerable size difference between these two siblings. So this, the little guy is more still nestling and the other guy is more fledgling. So we just opted to, to take them in so that we can, you know, stabilize and, and transfer out. So just to give the uh, the listeners a bit of an idea, they're inside a little incubator, um, obviously to help with the temperature, even though it's sort of, you know, it's still relatively warm. But I'm guessing, as you were saying, they, they've got that inability to regulate. You're feeding them as well. Just give us a sense of what it is that you're feeding, because it looks like, is that little worms or yeah, something? Yeah, so those are mealworms. But what I'm doing first is I'm hydrating them with some blueberries. And that just gets their, you know, any sort of dehydration out of their system. And then we'll start them on, it's a, a, a different songbird diet. So we mealworms and then you know, a different base where we dip the mealworm in to feed them. How do the animals come to you? Is it a case of you, uh, do you go and get them? Is it that they're brought to you? Is it a combination? I mean, just talk us through how that happens. Yeah, of course. So people will give me a call and, you know, I typically make everyone send me a picture of what they're calling about. So when you're calling me, it's my cell and I get a picture. For most animals, especially in the springtime, I do make people drop off because while it is pretty quiet in the shed right now, two weeks ago, there were way more animals in here and I get calls literally from from all over the state of Connecticut. And it would not be feasible for me as a single person, just an individual to to run all over Connecticut because then I would never be able to actually care for any of the animals. So I do ask people generally to drop them off unless it's an animal that I feel is a little more dangerous to handle that I wouldn't want a member of the public handling. So, but generally it's, it's a drop off sort of situation. We meet in the front yard and I get all of their information and then uh, you know I take the animal in and I triage it. We get a lot of traumatic injuries. I'm one of the few rehabbers here in Wyndham County who takes a wide variety of species. So you know I'll get anything from baby mice to opossums to birds, squirrels, rabbits, fawns, raccoons, skunks, basically anything, weasels. And then, you know, we triage, we treat wounds. If we need to bring them to the vet, we have a veterinarian that we work with. And, you know, medications, you know, sometimes euthanasia, especially if it's a pretty traumatic injury. And then we uh, network with a lot of the other rehabbers in the area. So I focus a lot on predator animals. So my specialty species are opossum and weasels, or the mustelid species, weasels, mink, and fisher. And the weasels just went out to pre-release this weekend. So they're at the uh, the cage at the property and killingly but you know that sort of really limits what type of animals I can take in because I can't have prey animals and predator animals hanging out in the same area because those prey animals would be very stressed. How difficult is it I mean you know I've got a dog I've got a cat I know that they're not wild animals but I mean they mean the world to me you look after these little critters for a while how difficult is it to, to let them go and to think they're going to be okay? Yeah, so 20 years has sort of really, I don't want to say hardened my heart, but it has given me a pretty reasonable expectation. So when I was first rehabbing and we would lose an animal, I would be in tears constantly and, you know, thinking, what did I get myself into? And, you know, 
I, I train apprentices, you know, they, they come and they get their hours here and I sort of really have to talk them through that sort of stuff. So your heart's going to hurt when you lose your patients, your heart's going to hurt when you let them go because you're going to be worried about them. Are they successful? But that's part of wildlife rehabilitation is part of that pre-release process is that we're making sure that they are adequately equipped in order to survive in the wild. So if we're doing opossums, we have, you know, their pre-release enclosure is set up like the forest floor with uh, dirt and we put worms and bugs and, you know, live rodents in there. And we want them to make sure that they can hunt and they can find their food and they can climb well and that, that they're just ready to go. And in all the 20 years you've been doing this, what would you say has been the maybe the craziest or the the oddest sort of situation i mean i'm sure there's plenty so trying to get you to like focus down on one is probably very difficult so i uh just a couple years ago i had gotten a call about a snapping turtle from thompson and uh, the people had told me you know he sort of lives in their little pond in the summertime he you know, migrates out of the mud and stuff and comes to their property. And he had a really swollen front foot. And I said, okay, you know, not a problem. I'll come out. That's one of those animals. Like if you have a a big snapping turtle that has an injury, you know, not necessarily hit by a car, but you know, snapping turtles can be uh, difficult to work with, you know? So I went out and I was like, is he in the water because I'm not going to go swimming for a snapping turtle. And they were like, no, it's okay. Cause we can call him up on land. You know, we've been feeding him. And I was, I was like, really, you're just going to like call him and he's going to like walk out of the water. And sure enough. So we went, I went over and you know, they got some cherry tomatoes from their garden and his name is Tommy and they named him that. And, you know, they were like, Hey Tommy. And they were showing him the, the cherry tomatoes and he comes lumbering up out of the water and I could see his foot. And, you know, he was a very, very easy catch at that point. And I was just like, wow. And he was huge, 30 pounds upon a mission. And he had a a huge wound to his front foot. So his front foot was very swollen, like two or three times the normal size. So we were doing antibiotic therapy and pain therapy for him. And we had like a pool in the backyard for him. And he, you know, he got out a couple of times because snapping turtles can climb. So like one day we were at a birthday party with my kids and we came home and the the neighbor next door stopped me and she had a garbage can in the middle of the road and she was like your snapping turtle got up i was like oh oh man so you know we had to get tommy and bring him back in but you know tommy was one of those success stories we were able to to heal his wound you know get his inflammation down and we were able to get him back out into the wild where he belongs and the people still let me know they still see him every year he keeps coming back so that's just one of the one of the stories that's that's a great story because I was going to ask you whether or not, you know, you ever hear about, you know, um, sort of like the creatures that obviously you help and clearly you do. As I said, we're in, I think you call it sort of like rehab central here. I mean, there's a lot of equipment in here. Some of it's sort of like fairly sort of like traditional things like microwaves, obviously for heating things. up. We've got a lot of cages here. The question is, of course, without being sort of like too intrusive, where's all the money come from to pay for this? That is an amazing question. So Nutmeg Acres is a uh, 501c3 nonprofit organizations. So we rely heavily on donations. We're able to fundraise about 40% of our yearly cost, which is is pretty good for for what we do. And then the rest of it comes out of pocket, it comes out of my family's budget. 
Wow, okay, so that's very humanitarian of you. And you were saying, obviously, I mean, because where you're based, you're based in a a neighbourhood, I mean, what would you call the semi-rural where you live? I would say semi-rural, I mean, it is pretty residential where I am. So there's a limit to, obviously, I think you were saying at the the top of the interview before we started recording, there's a limit to what you're obviously allowed to do from a permitting point of view, but you do have, uh, you know, other facilities. Talk to us about, you know, obviously the other parts of of the rehab, because I think your parents' property is involved. Is that correct? Yeah. So when I came home from college, I was still living with my parents. So when I was licensed, you know, that's sort of where... I started. So I have a a shed there and we built pre-release enclosures there. So I still utilize those to this day. And my, my dad even got licensed at one point to be a rehabber. He has since retired. But you know, when I have animals over there, he's more than willing to to help out and feed them and and sort of care for them you know I still go over and I check on them and I rearrange enclosures to make it exciting for them but yeah my parents property is great they have uh, five acres in Killingly it's mostly wooded there's some field there's a pond there's a brook so it's sort of ideal habitat for a lot of the animals that we take in. And how do your neighbours take to you doing this here? Because, I mean, you said again just a little while ago with the snapping turtle, it got out and, and you know, some, one of your neighbours very kindly like, made sure that it didn't get hurt. But what, what did the neighbours think about having this, this amazing woman doing this amazing work, you know, in their backyard, as it were? Yeah, so I think most of my neighbours are pretty accepting and very positive of it. I, I will tell you a funny story. So a couple of years ago, pre-COVID, you know, we went to a 4th of July party at one of the neighbours' houses and there was like a new person who moved in down the road and so when people drop animals off they're typically in cardboard boxes because I, then I don't have to like reach into carriers I can just take the box and I can go do my what I need to do for that animal and she had asked my husband at the barbecue she was like so are you guys drug dealers because I'm always seeing people like coming and going from your house and like with boxes and stuff and he was like no no my wife she takes care of wildlife so every time somebody comes to the house with a box it's an animal inside of it or multiple animals so in general I think everybody is pretty you know it's a positive experience you know I have neighbors who contact me you know when a bird falls out of their nest and we get it re-nested so you know it's it's a it's a really nice neighborhood here the other thing is I'm guessing is this must be like 24 7 as well I mean do do you get any rest at all so um early springtime I will say I don't get a lot of rest right now it's sort of quiet and I even hate to say that because then you know it's going to explode but a lot of animals that come in especially the mammals need to be fed some of them every two to three hours around the clock so I don't get a lot of rest for some animals and then others you know are like five, six feedings a day. So it really sort of depends on the species that are in care. And you were saying that um, you do teach interns. Um, well, you know, where do they come from and, and you know, how often? Because, again, that, you know, that's another sort of like time suck. But obviously it's an important thing as well because we need to, you know, have these more people, you know, more people trained up to do this. For sure. So they come from all over. You know, it sort of depends on how far they, they want to travel. We've had apprentices come from as far as Manchester, which is a pretty good distance from here. And but most people are sort of local, you know, within Wyndham County because they want to stay pretty close because they have to get uh, minimally 40 hours of uh, hands on experience with a licensed rehabber in order to 
apply those hours to their permit. And you're saying, obviously, at the, the top of the interview, you know, the qualifications and things that you undertook, just give us a sense of, you know, if somebody is listening and they want to, to do this and maybe they're a little bit further away or may not be able to come to you because you're busy. I mean, what sorts of um, education and qualifications do they need to be looking at to, to do this line of work? Yeah, so Connecticut, you have to be 18 years old in order to to start the process to become a wildlife rehabilitator. And But beyond that, there's no very specific qualifications. I mean, it certainly is helpful to have some animal experience, you know, vet tech, vet assistance experience, because you are going to be doing a lot of work with animals and, and medically as well. So those are the sort of basic qualifications, but you just have to be 18. You have to take the course that DEP offers in the springtime. Um, they've been offering it virtually, which has been super helpful for people the past couple of years. And um, so you take the course, You there's a test that you need to pass at 80% or better. And then uh, you have to do your volunteer hours. You have to get a vet who's willing to to work with you because the veterinary care is, is a huge part of, of what we do. And, um, you know, obviously be able to provide facilities for the, the animals that you're caring for. While you're talking to me, this is absolutely incredible. Tell me what you're doing. You are feeding a little animal here. I don't even recognize the, the animals. So what are you doing? Yeah, so this is a, um, a baby of possum joey. I got three of them in yesterday. And I'm actually tube feeding him. So I'm literally taking a tube and I'm sticking it into his mouth and I'm threading it down to his stomach. So opossums, they don't have a suckle reflex like most mammals. So when they're born, they're born very embryonic and they, because they're marsupials. And so they climb up um, into the mom's pouch and they latch onto a nipple and a membrane sort of grows and that nipple elongates and it sort of just drips milk into their belly and they stay in her pouch for quite some time. When we get opossum joeys in this size, we have to tube feed them so they won't, you know, take up take milk from a bottle. When they get a little bit older, you can uh, use a syringe and cannula feed them, but I just prefer tube feeding them because it's a lot faster. And how long will you have to do that for? So with these guys, they're not quite 40 grams yet. So they'll actually start lapping formula out of a little tiny dish when they're about 50 grams. So I will continue tube feeding them until they are lapping and making sure that they're gaining weight lapping. So they might start lapping and then I want to maybe top them off with a little bit of formula just to make sure that they're they're growing and gaining appropriately. Now, interestingly, you're using the word formula. I mean, so you, what, you're feeding them child formula, the stuff that we're hearing that is, is sort of like not really available at the moment. Is that the same type of, type of stuff? No. So we actually use an animal formula. So this is it's a base of goat's milk espalac, and then we add a few other ingredients, um, some vitamins and some calcium to their to their formula and we strain it out um, but definitely not human formula if you know people listening find an animal the best sort of thing is to you know contain it safely wear gloves get it into a cardboard box with an old t-shirt for some comfort pop some air holes in that box close the lid and keep it warm dark and quiet so most people's first reaction when they find something is oh my god I need to feed it and that's usually not the best reaction because 
especially with babies, a lot of times if they've been separated from mom, they're dealing with various levels of dehydration. So we need to, you know, often we have to do subcutaneous fluids, sometimes IV fluids. So when you introduce food and formula into their body, you know, they're now taking the energy to just sort of stay alive to try to process that food. So we just want people keeping them warm, dark, and quiet, no food, no water, and then reach out to either myself or another wildlife rehabilitator. I was going to say, because there's a very important point that we need to make here that um, in Connecticut, it's, I believe, actually against the law, isn't it, to sort of like hold on to, to wild animals. Just talk us through that because it's very important that people need to understand that. Sure. So, yeah, in Connecticut, it is legal to take care of wildlife, even if your intention is to release them, if you are not a state-appointed wildlife rehabilitator. And that's for a variety of reasons. So, you know, we have uh, training and continuing training that we do. So if you were to raise, say, a raccoon by itself, you know, that raccoon will bond to you. And then when you try to release it, when it's full grown size, it's not going to want to go. And I'm sure a lot of people listening right now are going to say, well, I know somebody who raised a raccoon and they released it just fine. But unfortunately, what ends up happening is that that animal's not equipped to live in the wild. So that raccoon might be habituated to humans and it could have approached a neighbor, couple persons down. You see an adult raccoon approaching you. What are you going to think? Something is wrong with it. Rabies or distemper and it's going to be killed. And so, you know, we have those sort of skills and that knowledge to be able to get the animals back out into the wilds appropriately to, to try and make sure that they live long, fulfilling lives. Yeah, so the important point to make is even if you've got the best will in the world when it comes to animals, and I think, you know, most people, their intent is good. It's like go and speak to an expert because really you're probably doing more harm than good at the end of the day. No, absolutely. And and my phone is on from... You know, I say my hours are nine to six or nine to seven, but realistically, I'm answering my phone pretty late sometimes. So while my ringer might be off at 10 o'clock, if I'm on my phone, you know, and I see a phone call coming in, I'm not going to ignore the person. If I'm asleep, I'm asleep and you can leave a message and my voicemail tells you what to do, keeping it warm, dark and quiet. Don't feed it anything, you know, and just keep it contained. Leave a message always. So I'm very responsive to messages. Um, I'm one, you know, I answer my phone almost all the time. Even my kids are like, oh, another call, mom, another call. So, you know, beyond being a rehabber, and it is really sort of 24-7, I'm a mom. I have four kids. You know, my oldest is turning 10 in July. I have a almost 10-year-old and almost 7-year-olds, and I have 5-year-old twins. So we're pretty busy, too. So, you know, sometimes I just can't get to the call or um, you know, sometimes I have to say, no, I'm not going to be the person who's going to be able to help you because, you know, while I have signed on to do this as a volunteer, um, I don't get paid for what I do. You know, my family does have to come first, too. Well, Sherry, amazing work that you do. And just looking around uh, at the setup here and these these very fortunate little critters that uh, are looked after and very well looked after as well. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Congratulations on 20 years of wildlife rehab. We hope there's many, many more years ahead. And uh, thanks ever so much for inviting us in and, uh, and taking a look at your setup. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming. And if you want to report an injured or sick animal to Sherry and you live in the Wyndham County area, then contact her via her website at nutmegacreswildlife.com. You can also find important information on her website as well about the do's and don'ts if you happen to find an animal.
warmer weather is here and it's time to give your plants some health care. From mulching to aeration to growth regulator, remedial and preventative treatments against fungus as well as insects like the spotted lanternfly and gypsy moth. Don't be reactive, be proactive and keep your trees and plants in tip-top condition to avoid long-term health problems. Find more details about plant health care services. Call 860-234-4041 or visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently, sponsored by... Every number tells a story. A true story. Connecticut by the Numbers explores breakthroughs and challenges, issues and answers. Behind the headlines, across the state, follow the numbers. Connecticut news that counts ctnumbers.news Scientists from the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station are warning of high levels of ticks in the state this year. They have also detected three new invasive tick species in high numbers in Fairfield and New Haven counties and across the state. Dr. Gudaz Malai heads up the Experiment Station's Tick Surveillance and Monitoring Program and says warmer winters and climate change are major factors we're now seeing these new ticks in Connecticut. Other factors also contribute, including the habitat type in the coastal region, the soil condition and soil temperature, as well as plantation and vegetation in that part of the state seems that is more conducive for these invasive ticks. Malai says the three new invasive tick species also bring disease with them other than Lyme disease, and people need to check themselves for ticks if they have been out in wooded or grassy areas where ticks are found. Recently, a New London County woman in her 90s died from Powassan virus, which she contracted after being bitten by a tick. It was the second reported case of the virus in the state so far this year, and the first fatality. Connecticut's beech trees are under attack from beech leaf disease and it's now spread across the entire state. Dr. Robert Mara is a forest pathologist for the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station and studies the disease and says last year's wet weather has dramatically increased the severity and distribution of the parasite called a nematode, which causes the disease. With each wet event that was an opportunity for nematodes to get into buds, I was collecting buds all winter long and finding nematodes in every bud that I collected from nearby forests that we knew had beech leaf disease last year. The previous year from the same forest, it was maybe one in 10 buds that had nematodes in them. This year, every bud I brought into the lab had nematodes in them. Mara says the severity of BLD has caused many younger trees to not produce leaves and mature trees to produce distorted leaves, which ultimately affects the overall canopy of the tree. BLD has also been detected in parts of eastern Long Island, as well as all eight counties of Connecticut, and currently has no known cure. Connecticut gained 48 new citizens on the 245th anniversary of Flag Day this year, June 14th, during a naturalization ceremony. The event was the first of its kind to be held post-COVID at Seaport Museum. The new citizens came from a variety of countries from around the world, including Greece, the original home of Emmanuel Fataris, who was grateful his 22-year journey to citizenship was now complete. My family, my wife, everybody else, 
my mom, my dad, everybody's here. So very proud I get to be part of this country. It gave me everything, so definitely do it. America's going to give you what you want as long as you're here to work for it, so do it. The ceremony was held alongside the replica of Amistad, the ship famous for its slave mutiny that saw them gain their freedom in a new world. Peter Armstrong is the president of the Mystic Seaport Museum and seeking naturalization himself and said the day was fitting in so many ways. It tells an amazing story about people that wanted their freedom as well. So it's just perfect for everything that we're doing. And I think one of the key things we talked about, everybody talked about, was that everybody that became a citizen today had their own stories, had their own culture, and that to continue to keep those because that just adds to the whole American experience. According to the United States Citizenship and Immigration Service, one in eight American citizens are born in another country, and they process around 800,000 requests for citizenship each year. Visitors to Mohegan Sun Casino now have the chance to win $1 million guaranteed on new in-house progressive slot machines. They're the first machines of their type in the Northeast. Kevin Lowry is the Assistant General Manager of Mohegan Sun and says although the new slot machines are open to everyone, they do have a target audience. These games are catered to our higher-end guests, so the minimum bet is $25. You can bet up to a maximum of $2,500. But the good thing about this game, which makes it attractive, is you don't have to be betting maximum to have an opportunity to win that major jackpot. Anyone betting the minimum $25 could win that major jackpot. The Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling, who works with the state's casinos and lottery operator, says it's another draw for those who like to gamble and could add to the increase in problem gambling they've seen spike in the state since the introduction of online gambling in Connecticut since last year. A problem gambling hotline is available to call in the state at 1-888-789-7777. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East this week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening.